everybody, and welcome back to the Zeitcast. I feel like we've had so many treasures here lately, uh, but once again, an episode I've been really looking forward to. Anybody who's followed me for any amount of time on any platform, I guess, has heard me talk plenty about Brad Jurzak. In addition to being my friend, um, he is definitely one of the people who's most shaped how I think about the image of God, the character of God. Uh, He's one of the people whose words, whose writing and preaching most just kind of speak to the shape of my own soul. Um, For those of you that were around for the Son of a Preacher Man podcast, the episode we recorded at Brian Zahn's house after the first water wine gathering on hell, judgment, and atonement is still the most listened to episode there. So we're not trying to set the bar too high uh, but I just know that whenever I talk with Brad, for one, I know I'm going to feel seen and known and a little less weird. <laughs> so that's no small thing. And um, a, a lot I want to say, but I guess first and foremost, Brad, I'm just grateful that you would take the time to be with us from Canada today. So thank you for being on the show, friend. It really is a, a huge honor. Oh, likewise. I'm I'm so thrilled. What a, And we've developed a dear friendship and sometimes... Um, when, when we start chatting, something productive happens. Who knew, right? And so I'm so glad to be with you today. Who knew? <laughs> well, it's, it's great to have you here. And um, I, I wanted to have Brad on as one of the earliest guests for many reasons. But it just so happens that he has not one, but two new books out. Since I haven't managed to put out another book since How to Survive a Shipwreck uh, in 2016. And... You know, am other under contract for another? It blows my mind, Brad. There are two books, two books out this summer. Is that right? Yeah, they came out within about two weeks of each other. And um, as we were saying before the podcast, initially it had been one book, but it was way over on the word count. And some of the content in the book in uh, was pretty radical. And so we thought, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one out on my own and and take the heat for it myself. And so far, it's just been resonance more than heat. So I'm excited. They're, the two books are companion pieces in that sense. That's great. So should people read one before the other? Um, it's uh, it's great that if uh, they've already read More Christ-Like God, then A More Christ-Like Way logically follows, and then In is a real extension of that. But I'm finding that some people are just racing straight to the book called In, and the subtitle of that one is Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And so it really, it doesn't really matter uh, where you jump in because it's all sort of one package. And hopefully, hopefully each is also a standalone book. I see. I see. Which I think, which I definitely feel that they are, that they both work as kind of standalone books. So let's. Let's do it this way, because I really want to talk about them both. I think they're both uh, really special. Uh, I was honored to endorse a more Christ-like way. I I regret now not getting around to reading in uh, sooner, because it's honestly blown my mind. And, well, I don't want to say blown my mind, because it's more feels like it's it's blown my spirit open. And I'm not surprised that you're hearing so many stories of deep resonance, because, like, the very best kind of spiritual writing, it's... In is one of those books where like you're reading, it's like these things that you felt like somewhere in your bones, you've always known, but never heard it said that way, which I think is, is a remarkable gift. 
Um, but let's maybe let's talk maybe for a few minutes about a more Christ-like way first, because I want to talk about a particular theme, a particular riff there. And then once we get into N, I just want to kind of get lost in that content because I think it's so um, unique and special. And I really do want everybody I know to read that book. But maybe by way of introduction, I will just briefly read uh, my endorsement for A More Christlike Way because it is a book I, I deeply believe in as I do the the book before that, A More Christlike God. But what I wrote about it, nobody's taught me more about the character of God than Brad Jerzak. Together, a more Christ-like God and a more Christ-like way are nothing less than the theological pastoral foundation for a brewing revolution. This is the clear, bold, defining articulation of the Jesus path we desperately need in this apocalyptic time when so many people have become rightly disillusioned with religion that's anything but Christ-like. This book is revelatory. If your faith has been unraveling or deconstructing, here is the new construction on the other side. Um, Deeply believe those words. And I, I felt like that might just be a good jumping off point, Brad, because everywhere I go, and I imagine this is probably the same for you because, we, you know, traveling, especially within like North American circles, deconstruction is such a conversation right now. And I feel like the way that you approach it in the book is so important and so needed. So I'd love if we could take even just a few minutes up front to talk a little bit about what you're doing with deconstruction in a more Christ-like way. Sure. Um, Deconstruction is such a popular word, even a trendy one, and it's almost like a second conversion for many people. And some choose it and some just undergo it. And so the idea is that as we're learning to individuate now, (laughs) learning maybe that there's some things we need to let go from the faith culture that we were brought up in, um, you start feeling like you're losing stuff and, and that things in your heart and in your faith are being dismantled. So what I do in the book is I take note that deconstruction is a metaphor, and in some ways it's quite a violent one. So I think a lot of folks uh, might be talking about jackhammers and dynamite and blowing up buildings and like we've got a, this this deconstruction metaphor actually forms a little bit of how you do it. So so you hit the uh, the dynamite plunger a little bit too quickly and then you're wondering why your your body parts are all strewn around the theological landscape and maybe just want to move on. So in my book what I do is I say because metaphors impact how we do our faith journey and how we make our faith shifts um maybe we could talk about some alternative metaphors that would would take greater care with both the ancient faith and with our own hearts and be a little bit more careful and gentle. And so some of the metaphors I pick up are like um, art art reconstruction, so or home renovation or extreme makeover or, uh, and the one that became most personal to me was my daughter-in-law's wedding dress when she ordered a, uh, a vintage wedding dress sewn in the 1930s of this beautiful silk satin. But of course, it arrived with water stains and wrinkles. And this is a biblical metaphor that that our faith and our hearts, uh, as the bride of Christ, that we are a bride and we've got this beautiful wedding gown. But in our confession, we say, you know, that we've stained it. Well, you don't deconstruct a priceless wedding gown. 
you don't bring scissors to that. You don't you don't go out to a Rembrandt that has has grime on it through the centuries and just start uh, taking a knife to it or pouring gasoline on it. So so deconstruction then um, then you can kind of see how violent that is. But if if you take great care to preserve uh, the vintage fabric or the masterpiece that's lived through the centuries. Um, maybe that's a way to think about our hearts and our faith too, and say, yes, I'm moving on. Yes, I need to remove the grime, the stains, and the and the wrinkles. But um, these things are treasures, and so we need to exercise care in it. And and for some, um, that just causes us to slow down a little bit and say, let's not pull the wheat out with the weeds. And so this is a meta- this is a metaphor Christ himself used, right? Um, that w- there can be a Puritan impulse that rises in us to just raise anything that was. And, um, and, and I think, and I think Jesus thinks that that can be a mistake. We can, we can end up, I, I, I deliberately wrote the whole chapter avoiding the metaphor of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but that's kind of what I'm doing there. I'm I'm saying let's let's beware of that. Well, and it's such a I I feel like it's such a unique and refreshing perspective because I feel like any of the pushback that I had heard before publicly on deconstruction language had mostly come from you know, kind of angry fundamentalists who, you know, were sort of shaming people for asking questions about their faith. And, you know, it's just, that's part of what I love about what you're doing is there's not a trace of fundamentalism in it at all. There's no fear. There's no pushback on asking questions or exploring, you know, the things that are in the depths of your soul that need to be explored, but rather this appeal to be tender with yourself, this call to be gentle because this is your soul that we're talking about here. I just think that's a really important perspective right. Yeah, now. thanks. And in in that sense I'm I'm also trying to appeal to conservatives by saying there there is something in me that wants to conserve the faith that we received or as Jude talks about the faith once delivered. There is a faith. It's not just my faith. There there's been something a story that's been passed down. Is there a way to do this um, this kind of detoxification without uh, losing that story. And more importantly, maybe like the person of Christ is, you know, I'm, I'm dedicated to the person of Christ. Is, is the fact that we've had some bad religion a reason to walk away from this precious person? So the two things I want to conserve is, is the treasure of one's own heart. And then also the treasure of this person that I've met and I, that I think it's inadvisable to walk away from him because we've been offended by a sort of modernistic, awful, gross versions of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, I, and that whole, I, I don't remember if that was in the book or in the great talk I heard you give about this things, but even talking about the iconoclast during the reformation, this idea of you just start tearing down the statues and pulling paintings off the wall just how much treasure is lost. Yeah, and when you start going after whatever the image is, let's say if it's a statue or an icon or a a piece of stained glass, you move on then also to the image of God in people. And so the awful thing about the iconoclastic movement was it was far more violent than the emperors of Rome. 
they killed more Christians mm-hmm. than all the Roman emperors put together. And it's like, well, wow. so there's a kind of iconoclasm going on in this deconstruction that says, tear it all down and burn it, burn it down. It's like, really? I, what will be left for my grandchildren if I burn it all down? And so maybe, maybe let's try a different way. Um, and yeah, I just love those home reno shows where they pull out the old awful, you know, shag carpet with the rat poop in it. And underneath it, there's this solid oak floor. And I'm like, wow, there's something solid under this. I'm glad we didn't just, you know, bring a bulldozer in. So that's what I'm encouraging people with. I, I think that in their hearts and in their faith, there is something magnificent underneath it. And let's not bulldoze at all. Let's Let's just as best we can keep what's good. Mm. Oh, I love that so much. Well, you know, Brad, it's like, um, and maybe this is a good transition here, knowing that the books were, you know, our companion pieces, you know, you, because you have such an affinity as to I for Jesus, and there's such a crisp kind of revelatory, uh, you know, just passion, I feel like to reveal Jesus and anything that you write about. I feel like that's what kind of drives everything and kind of shifting then uh, to the book in, which I really, because that's the one I've read more recently, I'm still very much kind of under the spell. I mean, I, I definitely, a lot of hot tears while reading that book. And part of what I love so much about it is that, you know, it's like, um, I think for any of us that have had a real experience of Jesus and any kind of, uh, intuitive, experiential, personal kind of way. If you've ever experienced Jesus, you know, there's just, um, that's, you feel that Jesus in the book in, you feel it in the stories that you tell. And um, I don't know, there's just so much that's going on, that's going on with it. But one of the things I feel that you do that's so unusual about that book, because I think any of us who love Jesus, but also want to love Jesus in a way that's, um, that's roomy, that's, uh, that's open-ended uh, towards uh, others, towards people who are not like us. There's always this tension between the particularity of the Jesus story and uh, the, the, you know, as we understand it historically through the gospels and all that, and yet the universality, the bigness of the message and the Christ that's kind of present in all things. And um, I, I, I just think, and I don't even know how to frame this as a question right now, Brad, because I feel like I'm just gushing. But what you do in in, I just feel like is so is so special and how you're kind of threading that needle of getting at the universality of Christ, but also what's so important about the particularity of who Jesus is. Yeah, that's really the effort I'm making there. So on the one hand, you have folks that that focus on the uniqueness of the incarnation, and they think that means that they need to have an exclusive faith. And then on the other hand, you've got folks who've come to see, I'll call him Abba, because that was Jesus' name for God the Father, Abba, or you could say Papa in English. You've got folks who've come to see that, that Abba's love is for everybody. And, but in order to embrace that, they felt like they had to diminish the uniqueness of Jesus. And what I'm saying is, oh, absolutely not. The higher your Christology the more you will see his absolutely unique revelation that Abba is for everybody. And so I don't have to be an exclusivist, nor do I have to compromise the incarnation. I'm like, this God who loves the whole world has come in person. And and he's, he's 
he's the one who's opened things up such that Paul can say that his love is higher, wider, deeper, and longer than, than you will ever grasp. And you're going to need supernatural empowerment to see that it is bigger and broader than you would have ever asked or imagined. And it is so precisely because of th- this man, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, uh, circumscribes the universe with his his hands. And so I, I, I yes. remember um, in the early church fathers, that's part of my scholarship, they would often use the cross in this way and say, um, mm. the, the cross beam shows us the breadth of Abba's love for everybody. Everybody's included. Mm. And the, the, the vertical beam shows us that his mercy extends to the highest heavens and also to the lowest hell. And you get this in that mm. amazing old hymn, The Love of God, where um, one verse from that, from that hymn actually was found scratched. The composer was, was in an insane asylum. And he had scratched the words on the wall and it's this idea that if you if you use the oceans as ink and the the sky was your parchment and every little reed from every uh, every pond in the world was was your writing utensil, you you still would not be able to express the love of God. It's so it's so huge. But then I, I'm saying why would I diminish Christ in that? He's the one who who's actually accomplished this. Yeah. And it's through him, not through the Christian subculture, that this comes about. Right. So just as in the old, you know, in the times of the Galatians, you had these guys saying, well, you can't really get into the kingdom as Gentiles. You have to come through the the Jewish door. We've kind of done that again. We've said, well, it's not enough to follow Jesus. You have to follow him through the, the Christ, this exclusive Christian door. But what we found out yeah. in our in the stories of my book is that I'm finding people who have met Christ in 12-step recovery. They've met Christ in the Islamic right. world. They've met Christ during their yoga sessions. And then that's yes. not to say um, that I don't tell them about Jesus. My role is to say, ah, this this Christ you've met, this light you've met, this word you've heard and begun to follow um, was embodied as the lamb who also takes yes. care of sin and he takes care of death and he gives belonging and meaning. And, and so there's a fullness to this inheritance that I want you to know about because you are on the right track because you've met him. Yes. Yes. Um, and again, and I want to get to that in just a minute, like even talking about the, the stories in the book, I think are so profound. There is such a sense of how those Jesus stories feel like such a continuation of the gospel Jesus stories and there because it is the same Jesus and he's very real. And I think that sense of just the, I don't know, just the imminence, the, the urgency of Jesus right in front of us. And that's part of why I found the book to just be so intoxicating, really. Something I did want to ask you, and I want to be cautious only because one of the things I find so beautiful about the book is that I love that I feel like even stylistically, you know, you're making choices to do something that is, I, I do feel like it's revelatory. I do feel like it reveals Jesus as the lamb. I do feel like it reveals the heart of Abba. And I like that you don't get into the weeds. I like that you don't engage in lengthy, you know, theological dispute, you know, or try to differentiate from all kinds of accounts. Like I like that it's more kind of accessible yeah. in that way. 
but something it definitely made me think about in terms of a lot of conversations that you know that I'm having. So earlier this year, I read Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ, and even went to the Universal Christ Conference there in New Mexico. And honestly, like in short, I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed the conference because I feel like everything Father Richard wants to do in terms of stressing the scope of Christ and how present Christ is in all things and people. Like I'm a hundred percent down. Like I just think you can't overstate uh, the 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 bigness of the Christ message and all of that. Like lands in such a you know kind of a deep place in me. Now at the same time though, the construct that he uses there, which I was familiar with long before that book, people like and he cites them, but people like Matthew Fox and others. Uh, of the cosmic Christ, where there's kind of a sharp delineation between Jesus is the man of history, but the Christ as this kind of universal consciousness or whatever. It's like, uh, it, it's just, it's for all the things that I agree with, it's still hard for me to buy that. And I hope to have Father Richard on the show, by the way, because I think he's delightful, but it's hard for me to buy that construct, you know, of this, this kind of hard and fast. It's hard for me to imagine early Christians making that kind of sharp delineation between, well, you know, Jesus is the man of history, but the Christ is, you know, so I just, it's just interesting how I feel like you're able to write about Christ in a way that I feel like is equally big and broad, but without that sense of separation between somehow the the Jesus of history or the Jesus of the gospels. It's like those categories don't exist for you. Is that fair? That's for me absolutely to say? fair. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I get emails about this twice a week. Um, and so uh, at, at the front end, I want to say, I love Richard Rohr. Uh, like as a person, he, he exudes the love of Christ and I would like to be like him. Yes, that, I mean, when you, when you fall into his arms for a hug, you just know you've met Jesus. So I want to say that yes, up front. Exactly right. I also want to say, I agree with his agenda regarding scope. I love that you use that word. What is the scope of Abba's love revealed in Christ? Higher, wider, longer, deeper than you can, you know, whatever, right? So I, I'm on about that. We take two approaches to get there. Both of those approaches mm-hmm. do emphasize a cosmic Christ, which I, I read Matthew Fox back in the day, but I also see the cosmic Christ um in Maximus the Confessor, it's a it's an ancient mm-hmm. version of the same thing. The difference then is exactly what you've seen. That for some reason, uh, Father Richard has delineated between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, and I'll get to why I think that might is a mistake. Um, uh, and what I've done is say why why would we make this delineation when it is the priority of John the Apostle in both his gospel and his first epistle, which I regard to be the most mature theology of the Bible in terms of progressive revelation. His entire agenda is to say, Jesus is the Christ, and that this is one person. And so this one person has has been revealed in the flesh, and he's constantly identifying it as as the one person. And so early in the church, they realized we always need to start with the one person. 
And then we can say, was this one person divine? Yes. Was this one person human? Yes. But it's always the one person. And when you make the delineation, you start heading towards an ancient heresy called Nestorianism, where you almost divide it, or adoptionism, where you divide the human and the divine. Um, and I, I don't want to call Father Richard a Nestorian. He's way more careful than that. I would say some of yes. his disciples aren't. And so I've, I have run into them, and I think this would grieve Father Richard to know that some of, some of those who love his book the most are saying Jesus of Nazareth is now optional, and we need to move on from him. And in fact, it wouldn't even matter if he ever lived. And I'm like, oh my goodness, now, now we've lost the gospel, because for John, he's like, here's the deal, that, that Jesus Christ is the word become flesh. And now... Why I think, why I think there's an issue, and Father John Bear, the Orthodox theologian, he really nails it beautifully. And you get this, I think, from Rowan Williams as well. What they want to say is the, that the man Jesus Christ is his humanity is not an event in the life of the Word. You don't have this eternal Word who then is temporarily human. In fact, it's even more radical than saying he becomes human forever. It's even more than that. It is to say, and this comes from the early liturgies, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the creator of all things. It's not a word who wasn't incarnate who becomes incarnate. The incarnate one that you would see walking in Galilee, you could point to that person and say, this is the one who who created all things. And actually, when Adam was created, he was in created in the image of God. And guess who the image of God is? Our Lord Jesus Christ. The God-man, God incarnate, was the prototype for all humanity to begin with. Well, how does that work? Yeah. The, the issue is around time. We got into this weird habit of talking about the pre-incarnate Christ as if the word came before Jesus. And then Jesus comes to be. See, I've di they're divided. It's not like that. The word doesn't come from before. The word comes from above. The word comes from eternity. And from all eternity is directly related to the one on the cross. And so, therefore, John is able to say in, in his apocalypse that, that the, the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. In other words... He, uh, you never divide the God-man because the eternal word has always directly been the one we saw in this world. That's pretty complicated, but all of that to say that I don't make that distinction because John doesn't make that distinction and, and that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ aren't optional at all. And that's that's where Rohr would absolutely agree. He said this, you don't lose the, he would talk about his tradition and in his tradition, which is Christianity, you don't lose the cross because then suffering loses its meaning in my life. So he's really committed uh, to, to the cross. But again, in ways that, that some who, who jump off, leap off from his shoulders are, are just saying, well, I, I'm not sure I even believe in Jesus, you know. But I believe in the Christ as this, as this uh, amorphous spirit that's out there. Yeah. It's like, no, the, this, this word became flesh. And that's really important because it's in becoming flesh that he heals my flesh.
Yes. In becoming flesh, he heals my flesh. That's just the most beautiful explanation of why the particularity of Jesus matters. And by the way, I couldn't agree more because, again, also is a huge fan of Father Richards and believes him to be a deeply Christ-like person who's greatly shaped my own life and witness as well. I do feel like the issue is more with where some of the disciples take it. But I just think, you you know, the way that then you're kind of threading that needle, maybe this is almost more of an aside, but I hate to just leave this laying there because I, I find this to be profound too. And it would also make sense of, you know, the extent to which I, the resonance I feel with you. I'm sure you've said this other places, but I've never heard you say it. And I just find it so interesting. You know, I, I see you and hear you interact with Paul plenty. It's not like you um, deny Paul's place in the canon or any of that, but I find it so interesting because this is something I also um, feel, but feel like I haven't really talked about publicly. This idea that the Johannine literature, that that John kind of gives you the most mature theology and sort of reading you know, through John, through, through the lens, whereas I think especially like in the Western church, we're so conditioned to try to interpret everything through Paul, the Gospels through Paul, et cetera. Why is that so important for you? That like, what, Why would you say that you feel like the sort of the Johannine canon within the canon is the most sort of fully formed? Okay. So as a precursor to that, I would want to say John doesn't negate Paul, but he illuminates Paul. We see th- so that I'll say that up front. Now, here's what here's why it becomes so important. John has had another full generation to not only think about these things. He's been praying about them. He's been interacting with the living Lord through the Holy Spirit. He's been getting revelation for another probably 30 years beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Paul, or James. All these folks who were already dead likely, you know, for 30, 40 years. So, so now you've got John and he's worked out some further implications and, and a number of them are super important. So I think I better not list them all, but let's, let's cover two. Um, one is that he, there's only three people in history that the church has designated the theologian, John, the theologian, Gregory, the theologian and St. Simeon, the new theologian. And they're called the theologian because they name God. So John is the first to overtly say, uh, Jesus is God. Now, having, having said that, you can then read it back into the Gospels and see it all over the place. But this is like that, that um, in the confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God, John has now revealed that Jesus is God. Um, later, Gregory the theologian will say the Holy Spirit is God. And then Simeon, the new theologian, will say the light that we encounter is God. And so that's why they're called that. But so, so the Christology of John, um, it, it's more overt than you'd get in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul. In, in some, and that's not to say they didn't see the full deity of Jesus Christ. They did. It's just that, yeah. that John is so overt about it that he comes right out and says, here's our confession. Uh, second, he does something very wild with the cross. And by the cross, I don't just mean the crucifixion. I mean the whole weekend, including his descent into Hades, his return, his resurrection, and the victory in that. What John does that's different is that this is the glory of God. This is the victory of God. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, the crucifixion is a humiliation and a murder and a great tragedy, but the resurrection is the vindication of Christ. In John, 
the cross itself, his ascent onto the cross is his enthronement. It, and, and the glory of God is revealed not just in the resurrection when he overcomes death. It's revealed there on the cross as radically forgiving, um, co-suffering, self-giving love. It, it's, and so now, the, the, now my hour has come. Now I glorify the Father. Now you glorify me, Father. And, 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 and he's lifted up. And so John does this pun on lifting up. And it's amazing because it, in the other Gospels and in the writings of Paul, they sort of separate things like crucifixion, uh, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, and the final judgment. John takes all of those, and he knows that they're consecutive in some sense, but that's not how he writes. He writes as if all of these now come, are centered around the cross, so that you get his crucifixion is on the cross, the victory over death is on the cross, even, even the final judgment is on the cross. Now the prince of this world is driven out, and you've got the uh, even Pentecost. He breathes out his spirit from the cross, and so there's this this release of the of, of Pentecost from there. And and it's not that he's disagreeing with the other guys. I think what he's doing is he's saying all of those events um, find their axis in 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 the cross, by which we mean Christ Himself. Christ crucified and risen, the lamb, behold, the lamb is what he's doing there, right? And it's this lamb who's the Christ you've met. So in the stories of people that I meet who've met Christ, then I, I can say, you have met the Christ. And I want to say, Jesus is that Christ. And let me tell you more about him. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I love that. And I, and, and, and I love those kind of stories that you tell in the book, maybe to lean in even to the book a little bit more. Um, is there a story you the want me to tell? Gosh, you know, there, there's so many. They're so great. Tell me whichever one is most stirring in you right now, because I think there were like four that made me cry. Like, I think just in terms of breaking people open to the expanse of God's inclusive love, like it's just massive. So whichever one is most stirring on your heart, like any of them, I'm so I'm endlessly moved by the stories in that book. Oh, man. OK, let's I'm going to take the, um, the the woman from. Narcotics Anonymous, and mm. so I I got a phone call that somebody that an addict, a drug addict, uh, needed to do her amends, and she wanted to do, and that's when you confess what you the harm you've caused as an addict, and one of the amends she wanted to do was to confess to the to the church that she had judged the church for, um, you know without even knowing what we believe. So I said, and they wanted me to stand in as, as a pastor. I'm like, well, I haven't been a pastor in a while. And they said, you'll do. <laughs> so, so mm -hmm. this, this person who will remain anonymous um, comes to me and says, uh, makes her amends to the church. And she's sort of minimizing any harm the church has done. She's saying, you know, after all, they did save my brother from addiction at teen challenge. And they, you know, and, and I said, I don't think your amends is going to be serious, you know, thorough enough unless you tell me how we've wounded you. And then she said mm -hmm. that the, her, when she was a girl, her neighbors really belittled her. They were Christians who treated her as a second class human. And that was hard. And then they took her to church one time for a kid's event. And then and then the janitor molested her. And I'm like, well, excuse me if you've judged the church a little bit. You know, if that's all you know about us, mm. that's horrendous. And so I said, I think I need to make my amends to you. And I did. So then that went well. And then I, I said, how long have you been in the program? 10 years. 
how long you've been sober, about 18 months. And then she says, okay, well, um, uh, I, I said, I said, if, if you've been in the program 10 years, you have a higher power. Oh yes. I'm like, what's your higher power? It's a light. I'm like, how did you meet the light? And she said, well, um, I had an overdose. I saw my spirit leaving my body. I turned from my body. And when I turned from my body to go, I saw a bright light. And you get this kind of story a lot with near-death experiences. Uh, ultimately, the, the paramedics brought her back. But before that happened is she saw that this light was pure. And it's like pure love and goodness. And so she reached out to the light. And she said, when I reached out to the light, the light reached out to me. And it came into me. And, and I said, where's the light now? And she said, for the last 10 years, the light's been living in my heart. And I'm like, the light. And I'm thinking, this is John 1. Christ is the light. She right. met Christ. She doesn't know it's Jesus of Nazareth yet. She doesn't know about the death and resurrection story, but she's met him already. And then I said, um, so you've met the light. He lives in your heart or the light lives in your heart. Um, and does the light speak to you? Oh, yes. I'm like, what does the light say? And she begins telling me, and I'm telling you, it's pure revelation. And it's about the love of God, mm -hmm. about forgiveness, about restoration. And and I said, so so when the light speaks to you, do what do you do? She's like, I, I, I follow the light. And it's the light that's been transforming her. It's been setting her free from the addiction now. It took a long time for her to let go of her stuff, but it's because of the light. And then... I said, do you talk to the light? Oh, yes. I, pr I pray to the light every morning for 45 minutes. I'm like, okay. So this person's had a, revela a revelation of the light and of the word, has deliberately turned to that light, is deliberately following that word, and the fruit of that kind of repentance is showing up in her, in her sobriety and in the transformation and her willingness to come clean with all the harm she's done. I'm like, this is amazing. And then... So I think she's kind of, at that point, she's like Cornelius, who was a God-fearer before he converted, yeah. who was clean before God, according to God, who spoke when he speaks to Peter, who whose faith practices are validated by God. And and so because Peter's idea is, well, just just because she knows God doesn't mean we don't share about Jesus. You know, we tell her the Christ you've met. Jesus is that Christ. So I said, could I tell you what Christians believe then? You know, and she's like, I have to pee. <laughs> We're at a coffee shop. And I think she needed to just go like grace herself because, okay, here comes one of those Christian pitches now. But when right. she came back, I said, this Christ that you've met and who's changed you and setting you free. Let me tell you what he was like when, when, um, when he embodied himself, incarnated, right? He, he was embodied in a person. A, a man, and this, and can I tell you two stories about how this, how, how the the light that you know who came to this world treated women, and because um, she's connecting Christianity still with being assaulted, but but Jesus wouldn't do that. So I tell her the story of the woman at the well, and I get to tell her about how historically her name in traditionally becomes Fotina, the one the one who carries the light. And then I told her about the woman caught in adultery and how when others would condemn, Christ did not condemn. He, he rescues the one who's, um, who's been exploited. 
And so now she has to think about that. And I, I deliberately chose some stories in the book that where I don't tie it off, where, well, and the Holy Spirit fell down on her and Tim Hortons. And, you know, right. no, she has to go think about this now. The Christ she's met has come to this world in the person of Jesus. And knowing that actually leads her into a deeper inheritance. There's more that she can receive now knowing that he's died and risen, knowing that he's taken care of sin and guilt, knowing that he's washed away shame mm. and actually that he's conquered death itself. And so that's one story of, of someone I know who, who I be absolutely believe that they met, they met Christ. And now I'm like the, which is what John says in John one, that, that this light has come into the world and that enlightens everyone who mm. comes into the world. Yes. And then I'm the John the Baptist witness who then comes along, behold the lamb. This lamb is that light. And so again, there's the identification of the cosmic Christ and the, and, and, and the crucified lamb as one and the same. And so now she knows Abba, you know, she knows him in a more intimate way with it. That's a shout out to Mer our friend, Mercy Aiken, by the way, who really showed me that, that when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and life, no one comes to Abba except through me. He's not saying no one knew God before they became a Christian. What he's saying, yeah, yeah. having found out that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Now they experience Abba in a, God as Abba, as this intimate indwelling lover. Mm -hmm. That's gorgeous. I mean, that's just gorgeous. And I'm just, I'm struck by so many things. I mean, the, the power of the story first and foremost but I think this idea of people coming to an awakening, a consciousness, whatever you want to call it, of a revelation, um, yeah. we might say, of who Jesus is. Because I think so often it's like people really are given this idea, and that's the alternative people have, is it's either, you know, turn or burn, uh, repeat this prayer after me, or you'll be tormented for millions of years forever. Or, as I've heard many people tell me, that if that narrative's not true, well, well, then why on earth would anybody follow Jesus? Why on earth would we believe if that's not the, the offer? It's like, there are other ways of thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. And have they not met Jesus? This is a real concern I have then. You get Christ-following 12-steppers, um, Christ-following Muslims, Christ-following, because they've met him, only because they've met him. Yes. And then you've yes. got those who actually do, conf they, they can make it, they can tick off the creed. But have they met Jesus? So I, I know many yes. Christians who are not Christ followers. And one of the ways I know that is when I quote the words of Jesus to them, they, they reject them. I'm like, wait a minute. We've yeah. got this parable wow. in the Gospels about two sons. One says, the father says, I want you to go to the field. And the son says, okay, I will. But he doesn't. And then the other says, no, I'm not going to. But he does. Which one's the Christ follower? And this is a picture of, like, let's say Gandhi. Gandhi was absolutely not a Christian. He never claimed to be a Christian. In fact, he right. was specifically said, I'm not a Christian, except wait. He picks up and he's reading the Sermon on the Mount every day and deliberately obeying it. So now we've got a, who's the follower? The, the, the peacemaker Hindu or the warmonger Christian? What, you know, Ooh, wow. that's what that parable is about. Right. And so... I think yeah. we need to make sure somehow that we're facilitating 
Christ following within Christianity, and somehow that has to include yeah. encounter. I want my Christian brothers and sisters mm. to meet the Christ the way my NA friend did. Wow, yes, yes. You know, Brad, this is something I really am struggling with a lot right now because on the one hand, I want to believe that there's something about, you know, a, a more primal experience of Jesus and, hey, we recite the same creed or we come to the same table and that makes us one despite any other kind of ideological difference. But on the other hand, it's like what I, I see this happening all the time, you know, where, and I won't name any particular names here, but where people use the name of Jesus, repeat the name of Jesus. Yes, they would agree with every point of the creed. And yes, they uh, have doctrine that technically like sounds fine. But at the end of the day, um, in no functional way are following G Jesus. I mean, if Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, um, they don't uh, they don't believe in Jesus as the way that there is a way of the cross, a way of the kingdom, a way of nonviolence. And it's just, man, it's just such a weird place to be when you do encounter people who don't name the name of Jesus like that or don't have the same kind of credo beliefs. And yet you can feel a deeper kinship with people who have had this kind of experience than people who might actually mouth the same words of the creed that you do on Sunday. That's an interesting feeling when you're really deeply committed to the particular the particularity of Jesus. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the case. Now, so one of the things that Father Rohr notes is that when you gather together mystics from across different um, traditions, and so he they you know he talked about this experiment where you bring Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, and Christian mystics together, it is easy for them to talk because they've had an encounter with the light. Um, yeah. So that's that's real common ground. What I do at the end of my book is I say that's not the end of it though. Because um, we we have we we have a lot of common ground, and and what do you know? The light of Christ is that common ground, and and perhaps we understand them differently, but we're having real encounters with divine love. Yeah. I think then we need to move forward in those relationships and say, okay, stage two, let's talk about our differences, because the mystics have often acted like all of the differences are just surface things. They're just externals that are, but at the core, we all believe the same thing. And I'm like, that's not true. You can't be a Christian and say that um, the incarnation is a, is a surface level, marginal doctrine. That's at the core of our faith. Yeah. You can't, and, and I don't want to impose that, let's say, on a Muslim where I said, well, what you believe about the Quran and Muhammad doesn't matter. It's like, absolutely it matters. If you don't believe certain things about Quran and Muhammad, you're not a Muslim. You can be a mystic, but you're not a Muslim anymore. And so on with these others. And, and I want to say, let's, have, let's learn as peacemakers how to name those differences peacefully and respectfully. And um, one of the stories in one of, my, one of these two books is about this imam who says, oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean. As, oh, as an Orthodox story. Christian, you must believe Jesus is God. And as a Muslim imam, I must believe he's not. And mm. we can hold those differences respectfully. And in fact, he says, and you can come and eat in my home. And any door I can open to any nation in the world for you, I will. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so pretending that 
we don't have core convictions that are different waters down my faith and waters down his faith, and that's doing a disservice. And then we move on to say, okay, we've got our common ground, and now we've identified our differences. We've shared common ground, shared differences, and now we can share our faith. Here's, Here's how I've encountered the truth within my tradition Here's how he's encountered the truth within his tradition. And, and it, as it turns out, we're both Christ followers, and we would absolutely have some important differences in our Christology. And yet, sharing our faith means we, we're both actively following Christ at this point in a way that's made us most peacemakers that helps us love one another. Um, my, uh, I should quickly mention this, this idea that my friend Andrew Klager gave to me, it's it's sort of like we're both doing our very best to draw our picture of God, and I actually think mine's right, and he actually thinks he's right. Yeah. But we're toddlers with blunt crayons, and so we offer up yeah. our pictures to God, and we're kind of surprised and annoyed that God approves of both our pictures, knowing that they're mutually exclusive. But then what he says is, if you want to see the best image of God available to you, look in your brother's face and don't poke him in the eye with your crayons. So <laughs> I love that. That analogy is so powerful. I mean, it really is this idea that like, you know, God puts both of the pictures up on the refrigerator, yeah, you yeah. know, because he's proud of both of his kids, but it doesn't mean any of our artwork is especially great. You know, it's just like, there's something that's so, that's so moving to me. You know, it's, I'm struck as you're talking about these things, Brad, by the, a tone or a feeling that I got in the book too, because I feel like in any in any book I read that gets into, I don't know, um, issues of judgment, um, uh, inclusivity, exclusivity, who's in, who's out, it so often feels like, you know, or really almost always feels like that there is an agenda, kind of an intellectual agenda to try to convince me of something. And I didn't walk away from the book in feeling like you were intellectually trying to convince me of something. It almost didn't feel dogmatic at all in that way. And, and that's which is part of what sets it apart is there's a robust theology that's there, but it feels like it's not trying to intimidate anybody or bully anybody in an argument, but that rather there's an invitation that it's gesturing towards. Is, do you think, is that a fair thing to say? And, and if so, how would, what would, how would you name, what would you name that invitation? Well, I'm really... I'm really overjoyed that you experienced it that way, given that I, you know, I do pitch a, a high Christology and, but you didn't feel yes. dogmatized by that. That's good. I wonder if one of the reasons is because I, I, I'm a theologian in this sense. A lot of theologians thought that it's their job to prescribe a belief system. Then you go out into the world and you try to apply it. And I just don't think that's good theology. And I, I don't think that's how it worked in the Bible. And so instead, what I'm trying to do is to say, um, I, I'm reflecting on real life experiences. And it's my theological interpretation of those things, which is what you have in the four gospels. Those are the events came first. And then there's a theological reflection that incorporates what they knew of um, the scriptures. And, and they're like, how did these scriptures help us identify the meaning of these events, the events of the life of Christ? Mm-hmm. And so 
partly, although I start with my theology, and I did that because I didn't want to switch off the conservatives right away. I start with a theology, but sure. really what I'm doing is I'm saying, how do the scriptures help us to understand these crazy encounters I'm hearing about? How can we reflect on them faithfully? Mm-hmm. And in in those encounters, my vision of Christ got bigger and my vision of Abba got wider. And I'm like, that's interesting mm-hmm. because those things have become have come at odds recently by, you know, the Christian exclusivists and the Abba pluralists. And I'm like, no, right, right. they keep manifesting in these specific encounters in a way that does leave me with the hot tears too, to quote Jonathan Martin. You know, it's like, how could God be this good? Um, and yes. we didn't even, at this point, we haven't even talked about the sort of the later part of the book where I'm like, if this is really true, how far does it go? And when we, what we see is it goes so far as to include those who you would least want to forgive, right? So, yes. so I've got the yes. radical the radical embrace of this forgiving God of, 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 mm. of the molested and the molester and the, the priest at Jesus feet, you know, and it's not, it's not just the whore at his feet. It's the, it's the priest. And, and like, what do we do with that? And it's like mm. way more than it, Okay. Now it's out of our pay grade. We're into supernatural grace yes. here and you can't explain yes. it apart from, um, <laughs> you know, a, a, a real supernatural living, loving person who brings us into, into his arms. And I guess, I, you know, I've been watching that happen for 30 years. You know, I've, I've been in part of the inner healing movement for so long, and I've seen one thing consistently, that God is love who shows up through Christ and reaches out to the absolute like worst case scenarios, and it's always, always love and never, ever retribution. So, mm, yes, part part of the Orthodox faith I, I I'm in is we we would say there is no retribution in the nature of God, and anyone who says so hasn't done inner healing work mm. for thirty years because you just yeah. won't find it. And so, um, and then we come back to the scriptures and we say, ah, this is what John said: perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who's still afraid who still thinks it's about punishment, who still thinks God, well, it's just that the love hasn't perfected you yet. Um, the love hasn't perfected yes. me yet, but I've watched it perfect people and in their love. So they're not afraid anymore. To me, that's freedom. You know, Brad, and part of, part of what's so powerful about that is that when you get into those accounts of radical forgiveness and how, whatever, however we conceive God to be, that there can't be retribution. Part of what I love about how you do that is that it it doesn't ever feel like you do that in a way that takes away the weight of abuse or that minimizes anybody's pain or that, or that somehow um, scales down the horror of any of that in some way. No, it's like, you feel like in those stories, like the, the weight of that is fully, fully true. And yet there's still, is this hope that, you know, at Christ's table, that it is possible that the abused and the abuser could be reconciled in a way that could, that could only be explained by the Holy Spirit and by some sort of radical supernatural grace, the way you describe yeah, it. Yeah. The, the, you know, there is an accusation when you preach the love of God, and there's actually a stream of Christianity now that says, that calls this a God is love heresy. I'm like, my goodness, mm-hmm. people, you've just de- renounced 
Johanna in theology. But here's here's right. the thing is that it's like, well, you're overemphasizing love and it's hippie love and that's too easy and all of that. It's like, no, the cross defines the weight of sin and the horrors of it and of abuse. And the cross is the place where Christ drew up every sexual assault, every bullet fired from from an NRA gun, every bomb and bit of shrapnel that's taken out and done collateral damage at some way, all of that's drawn up into the cross. And if we think the love of God is too easy, just go and stand in front of that cross and tell Jesus that. And it's like, uh, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Yes. And Which is an actual story in the yes, book. Yes, it is. And that was a story about a, a man, a molester, who Christ forgives. And, and he and he looks at the cross and says, that was too easy. And Jesus says, no, it wasn't. Mm. No, it wasn't. And so uh, if, if we think radical forgiveness by Christ is too easy, uh, go try it sometime. You know, like, yeah, um, that's what he's calling us to do is, is to say, well, if, if it's so easy, just go love your enemies then give it a go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then you may begin to connect with the crucifixion that happens in your soul when you have to let go of resentment and malice. In fact, yes. that's the fire yes. of hell. The fires of hell are the malice in our hearts and it's forgiveness that quenches that fire. And, and we see that forgiveness most clearly and universally on the cross. Mm. Mm. That's so beautiful, Brad. I feel like, you know, and I, again, I know we've gone almost an hour. I don't want to, you know, take up your whole day, but it's really wild. I felt this, you know, when we did the podcast before, but anytime we talk about these things, it's just, you know, my brain's just on fire right now and heart on fire more so just with the, with the truth of all of this. It's why I especially hope people will read the book in because I feel like, you know, anybody who has had any sort of experiential encounter with Jesus is any, everything inside is going to scream like, yes, yes, yes. I'm just, um, I don't know, Brad, it's not, and I'm not trying to detour this at all, but just maybe a, a kind of closing reflection, though, again, I truly could do this for days with you. I feel like they're so, I mean, you live at the intersection of traditions. I think you're, you're charismatic, uh, background and you so function in that way, but being now within the Orthodox church. And one of the things that I do love about the moment we're in for all the things that are so scary and polarizing about it, which we've been talking about on the podcast, even the last week or two, um, there's this unique potential as well in terms of, you know, I've never seen the lines more blurred within the broader body of Christ in a wonderful way. And it does feel like the the prayer that Jesus prayed for us in John 17, that we'd all be one is kind of straining towards fulfillment, almost with or without our consent, you know, God pulls us together. And I'm just, um, I just love to ask you because there are so many things I think that are scary and volatile about the time that we live in, but what, what gives you hope right now? Like in terms of you, you you interact with all kinds of people and all kinds of believers around the world. Like, what do you see God doing in the broader body of Christ that makes you hopeful in the midst of so many things that legitimately we could be discouraged about. Yeah. You know, it's funny because in, in a more Christ-like way, I got to a chapter on radical unity. And by the time I was done it, I was just like really depressed, you know, <laughs> because mm. I thought about all the denominationalism and the, and the wars and, and how the, how, how politics has even created a new schism within the church and all of that. And, and then I took a few weeks off from it, and uh, two things came clear to me. Uh, 
I'll say, first of all, within, within the body of Christ, I do now think that this idea that God is love um, expressed so beautifully in, in the parable of the prodigal son, which is completely without retribution, um, that it's, mm. it's, it's lodged now. It, it, it can't be dislodged. And so there is a kind of there's a kind of momentum that will come from that. There's an undercurrent. There's also pushback, but it doesn't matter because it's not going away because it's an actual revelation of Abba's love. Yes. I think in the 70s yes. and 80s, there began to be an outpouring of this revelation that God that God is uh, of Father's heart, Father's love, Father's house, Father, 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 and and that. Christ is the one by the Holy Spirit who poured that out. And I saw it emerging in so many different movements completely independently at the same time that I'm just utterly convinced that it's a move of God. And so um, there are many things that, that appear to be moves of God that come and go, but that seems to be, a, uh, it's not a human construct. It's something God's depositing right now. It's in, in that sense, uh, it's a it's a reformation of uh, image of the, of God that it is so different than sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's so different than the Jonathan Edwards evangelicalism, even that we were still brought up on. And so that's that's pretty amazing. And then the other thing that gave me hope is just um, is how is how the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of revival. And so I'm not a revivalist. I got tired. It made me tired because we tried to manufacture things. But I do see a revivification, a new life, uh, around, right in the point of tragedies. And I, one example was that comes into my book is, is, the, is the massacre in New Zealand. And just how those the Muslims in the mosque were... Uh, were, it was such a tragedy when, when they were killed, and 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 yet the the Christians actually showed up, and they they were surrounding mosques three or four deep just to protect them, so they could worship in peace. And then we began to see this in other places: um, Jews, Muslims, and Christians defending one another's freedom of worship and putting their own bodies in the way of potential threats. And I'm like, okay. This this is transcending something. This and this this will be wild. We might want to talk about this another time. Just how? What if the church isn't a small subset of Christianity, like where you've got this organized thing called the church, but Christians is a broader movement? What if church? What if Christians are one movement within the within the church? That the church includes wow. all Christ followers from any faith mm. alive or departed and also like other planets, what it, it, it includes certainly in Hebrews 12, it includes, it includes mm. the angels. It includes the old Testament saints. And suddenly you're going, Oh, yes. church is the gathering of all those who wrote, who, who, who come around the throne of grace, who see the light yeah. and begin to hear the light of Christ saying, follow me. So, so I'm like, wow, these Christ following Muslims aren't Christians, but they are church. These NA yes. um, people in recovery aren't, they're not Christians, but they've met Christ. And I'm there to say mm. Jesus is the Christ, but he's already transforming them. So in some way, church then is this, is this, is the great gathering across the cosmos of all those who, 
who 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 gather at the throne of grace and and it's not even all just humans for goodness sake so i won't seeing it that way gives me hope because that means i can see christ at work anywhere even in paths that lead away from the kingdom of god christ is joining people on their paths to bring them in Ooh, I love that so much. And I can't, and I just this idea, because I just don't want to let that be, of how powerful it is where people are instead of, well, I just, I just think so often of, you know, and I, I don't hear people talk about this a lot, but, you know, Saul's conversion to Paul. I mean, so many people talk, talk about that being the road to Damascus, but all that happens on the road to Damascus is that he's blinded. You know, it's when Ananias, who's terrified of him, says, Brother Saul, wow, and calls this person he's terrified of, he, it's when he calls him brother. Yeah that the scales actually fall off his eyes. It actually feels like in the story, that's more the moment of conversion is when this person extends a word of friendship to him, to the man that he presumes to be an Dude, enemy. Dude, that'll preach. <laughs> it just did. <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, this is another Johannine thing. So, so in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you've got love your neighbors as yourself. In John, you've got love your brother. And we thought, <laughs> at some point in our exclusivity. Oh, we don't have to love our neighbors anymore. We just have to love our Christian brothers. Right. It's like, no, John is saying all your neighbors are your brothers. Yes. Yes. Uh your your global your this is a global village of neighbors and you must welcome everyone as brother and sister um if you love God. And so he's pretty he's like, hey, anybody who loves knows God. And anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. And so, like, love your brothers or else don't claim to be a Christ follower. You've missed, you know, it's right. like, whoa, that's a, that's heavy stuff right there. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not, absolutely. I'm not there, but I, so I'd like to, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I believe in it. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. but like, I want to follow that. I want to be transformed. So I do. And the Christ like way is not something I've arrived at. It's something Jesus arrived at. And I'm, I'm hearing him say follow. And I'm like, wow, this is really hard. He's like, yeah, it's like a cross, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, a <laughs> okay. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Imagine that. It's a, it, I feel the same way. Like It's like the, the more this stuff keeps happening, I don't feel, I feel less and less confident about my status as a Christian. But the more clearly I feel like I'm coming to see the path in a way that makes me say, ooh, I really would aspire to that now. Like, I would really like to do yeah, this, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, there's this controversial guy named Jordan Peterson up here in Canada, and they keep asking him because he says Christian-like things. They keep asking, are you a Christian? He's like, "That I'm not going to claim that. Like, I can't claim. Mm. What's a Christian? If a Christian is someone's actually following, yes. I can, I can, I'm going to desire. Now, that's not to say I'm worried about my identity as a son or, you know, you know in the kingdom, but I'm... But this idea of like, it'd be good if we lived what we claim and then maybe let others decide if we're Christians. Right, right. Yeah. And wow, that's you, a, that, that's are a you great a Christian? Idea. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> it's like, yes, yes. That that's brilliant. might not even be good news. So, <laughs> Right, right. Oh, I love that, Brad. I really do. Um, tell you what, friend, I would love it because we've been talking about how the book, I feel like, is such a, well, both of them are an invitation to Jesus and to the Jesus way. And I talked about even sensing that myself, you know, that it makes me want to aspire towards the path. It makes me want to be a Christian. It certainly makes me uh, adore God more, which I think is the best thing I could ever say about any book. 
But I would love it, Brad. Now, you know, I've only done this a couple of times, maybe once or twice since we've done the podcast. But I think it would be special for you in particular because I do, you know, I do believe in the power of prayer. And I think there's so many people, even the kind of conversation we've had today, it, it stirs on a certain kind of angst and questions that people have and things that are being stirred up. But I think, you know, beneath that, there is such a desire and a restlessness to connect with the risen Jesus. And I would love in just whatever direction you'd want to take that, if you could just uh, pray for us here in a way that just create makes that kind of space possible for yep. people to to connect with God and can connect their story with this big story that we're telling. I'd love to, yeah. Um, so maybe I'll begin this prayerful time. It won't all sound like prayers, but this prayerful time where I say that God is love and he's shown us what that love looks like in someone who revealed God's love as self-giving. He's utterly generous to you. Everything he has of himself is yours. He's radically forgiving. There's absolutely nothing his blood can't wash. There's not a single thing we've ever done that would hinder him from loving us. And, and he's co-suffering. He, he, he knows your deepest sorrows, your deepest pain. He has, he, he has experienced it in his body and in his soul and his spirit. And he's wept blood for you. That's, that's the kind of, of, of love that is extended and, and that lives in you. If, if, so if, if we want to experience that love, we, we say, well, okay (laughs) that's that's our complicated prayer i would be willing to surrender myself to that kind of care if if god is really like that if jesus has really revealed god as this indwelling abba who holds us in, in at our worst and in our most deepest pain who's gone into the abyss to find us um could you surrender yourself to his care would you like to taste that care before you decide and so uh one thing we'll do in prayer now is just to say if you could meet him anywhere at all for one-on-one and just look him in the face where would you meet him you meet him outside inside favorite room favorite chair favorite beach favorite mount wherever you'd meet him uh open the eyes of your heart and just see how he comes to you. Does he come as father, as friend, as brother? Does he come as shepherd, as king, as healer? However he needs to come to you. Uh, open the eyes of your heart to see him. And uh, that place is really, it's not somewhere else, it's in you. He comes to your heart to visit and he says, I'd like to live here. And uh, if you, you take a moment uh, to open the eyes of your heart to see the expression on his face. You know, faces communicate. How does he look at you? What expression is there? And what are his eyes saying? And I know that the true Lord Jesus of Nazareth, his eyes communicate good news. And so what's the good news message that you'd receive from his eyes today? Maybe you're less visual and more auditory. And so he's had your whole life to wait for this moment to come up with a great (laughs) one-liner what's the very first thing he would say to you today and 
so we open the ears of our heart to listen. And, and I'll just ask him like this, hey, uh, Jesus, what's the good news? Would you tell me, brothers and sisters, in this moment? And uh, so if, if we're not asking anybody to sign up for something, it's just probably a day to receive some love. So if you want to open the hands of your heart, I'm going to ask him to bless you. So Father in heaven, Abba, Papa. Son of God with those wounded hands. Holy Spirit with that fiery love. Would you bless my brothers and sisters today? In fact, um, would you lay your wounded hand on their burdens and draw off burdens and pour in healing light and love today? And fill them up with all the goodness that you have for them. And uh, so just just let stuff go this is how to do deconstruction just let let him draw out toxins from your heart into his wounds where he'll swallow them in love and let him pour healing love into your heart Mm -hmm. it could change you from the inside and then um uh, how about amen means lay back into that love that's all just lay back into it and so um you know, I'm going to go, but you don't have to leave from there. You can live from there if you want. And so that's the invitation today. Amen. 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 Well, I'm all like, <laughs> I'm all messed up over here now. Thank you, friend. That was wonderful. My pleasure. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what a beautiful way to end our time. But as you said, an invitation that that remains in a place that we can live from and live into. And, uh, well, as always, I'm just so grateful for your work and for your witness and for the, the kind of space that you're carving out for people like me on the journey, friends. So just know, uh, how, how loved and appreciated you are. Well, well, likewise, I'm looking forward to seeing you face to face again, and we'll, we'll do some more stuff together. It's always, it's always amazing being able to participate in whatever God's doing. Right. So, absolutely, absolutely, and maybe this is even though this is a ways out. I haven't mentioned it publicly otherwise because it's just so far, and Brad's so booked up. But for my friends at the table in Oklahoma City, Brad is coming. I think that's the first weekend in March of next year. So we're very excited about that. That we're going to do all kinds of things. Whoa. That we're <laughs> yeah, but to have the opportunity to conspire a bit and scheme in person. That's going to be yeah. fun. Your listeners could at least block off the time in their calendar. And just don't book anything else there, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, my friend. Such a a pleasure having you with us. And I do look forward to hanging out soon. All right. Talk to you next time. Take care.